0: It is always a great joy and privilege to minister the word of God to his people. And I would invite you to take the infallible record and open it up to Acts of the Apostles, chapter 22. And I've entitled my discourse to you this morning, A Suffering Servant and Our Sovereign God. And that will become exceedingly evident as we examine the text this morning. Acts chapter 22, we begin with the last verse and go into the 11th verse of the 23rd chapter. But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, He released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. And Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law, order me to be struck? But the bystander said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was priest. He was high priest for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But perceiving that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And as he said this, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And there rose a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. May I remind you of the context, what has happened here and what's going on. The Jews have just recently tried to beat Paul to death just outside the temple. And the commander of the Roman troops saw the commotion, thinks that it's an Egyptian terrorist that they were trying to catch, and rushes in to capture this man, thinking probably that he's going to get some great promotion. And he puts Paul in chains, begins to interrogate him. But it's so chaotic that he has to take him into Fort Antonia and to the barracks to try to get some answers out of him. And Paul wants to address the frenzied mob that just tried to beat him to death. And the commander agreed and said, "Okay, why don't you do that? Certainly thinking maybe I can find out what in the world is going on here. So Paul gave his testimony, and he told his Jewish kinsmen that all that God had done, all that the Lord had done in his life, and that now he was going to be sent to the Gentiles. Well, that's like throwing a match on gasoline. And that infuriated the Jews. They exploded into a fit of rage. And so the Romans, once again, have to take him into the barracks. And the commander is so frustrated, he orders Paul to be stretched out, to be scourged, to torture the truth out of him. Whereupon he finds out from Paul that he is a Roman citizen. And immediately he does a very quick backpedal because he knew that it would be illegal to do that to a Roman citizen. So he releases Paul now and orders him to come before the council, the Sanhedrin, to find out what is going on. And as we have just read, they they meet. They probably met somewhere outside the fortress of Antonia there in Jerusalem. It was somewhat of a preliminary hearing. And as we have just read, once again, things go from bad to worse. The Romans are afraid that Paul is going to be torn to pieces, so Once again, he's taken back into the barracks for safekeeping. Soon, as you go on to read in Acts, we find that Paul is going to be escorted to Caesarea. They're going to have to sneak him out in the middle of the night with a large entourage of soldiers to protect him from a Jewish mob that is going to come together to try to kill him. Soon he would stand before Felix, the governor, and sometime after that he would stand before Festus, who who succeeded Felix, and then later on even stand before King Agrippa, and ultimately he will be taken to Rome and preach the gospel there. And as we approach the text this morning, I want to draw your attention to four things that, that really stand out to me. First of all, we're going to see the purview of God's sovereignty, the purview of God's sovereignty, that through all of these events, God is still on the throne, even though it would look like the church is finished. Secondly, we're going to look at the power of a clear conscience, the power of a clear conscience, not only with respect to Paul, but also the nature of the conscience and how That works in all of us. Thirdly, we're going to look at the priority of submission to the Word of God. The priority of submission to the Word of God. Why that is so important. And then finally, the presence of God in suffering. Because we are going to witness once again the God of all comfort comforting His own. And I pray this morning that... As we look at these truths, that they will deeply impact all of us who know and love Christ, informing our worship so it can be deeper and transforming our hearts, causing them to be even more conformed to the image of Christ. And I might also add for those who are within the sound of my voice, those of you that remain in spiritual darkness, it would be my prayer this morning that the power of the gospel will penetrate your heart. You will see its glorious truths and humble yourself before it and come to Christ in genuine repentant faith. So, first, we come to a rather overarching theme that emerges from the text, and that is the purview of God's sovereignty. What I'm referring to here is the scope of God's operation, the extent of His authority, and we see that it is both eternal. It is also comprehensive. It is total. Here we see God's sovereign control over all of history. Even as it relates to his bride, the church, the body of Christ. I want you to think about something. If you were to read this text, in fact, if you just read Acts of the Apostles, you, you, you're going to be in a bit of a tension because you're going to see on the one hand, the church is growing. But on the other hand, it seems like at every turn, the church is going to be destroyed. That it's just not going to make it. And, you know, this could be a very disturbing passage of scripture that we come to right here. It seems like the whole world is against God. Um, his apostle here continues to be maligned and mistreated. There, there's no Justice. There's no integrity with the religious leaders of the day. Everything is just chaos. It's conflict, violence. The gift of God's grace is just routinely rejected by so many. And now the life of the greatest evangelist in the history of the world is in jeopardy. If you read this text, you would think, my goodness, it would appear that the church is on the ropes here. It's awaiting one last final knockout punch from the Jews and from the Gentiles, and then it's over. And yet we know that just the opposite is true. We know that the church continued to grow exponentially. And we're forced to ask the question how can that be? Well, beloved, the answer is very clear from Scripture. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, the head of the church, promised in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. In other words, not even death itself has the power to thwart my purposes. And indeed, repeatedly in Acts, we see. That the very blood of the martyred saints like Stephen caused the church to spread all across the ancient world as the believers fled from persecution. And the persecution actually accelerated not only the growth of the church, but increased its spiritual power and determination. Beloved, practically speaking, we should all find great comfort here. Knowing that as we struggle in this life to somehow spread the good news of the gospel, to advance the kingdom against overwhelming odds, we know that ultimately it is the Lord who is building his church. And as I think about it, everything in this world system that is ruled by Satan is against us. It doesn't take us long to realize that as we look around. There's false religions. There's false teachers everywhere. Just think of politics, government, public education, the media, the entertainment industry. All of those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, all of those who prefer darkness rather than light. We see it all around us. And sadly, because of this. Many churches believe that they must reinvent themselves to somehow become more relevant to the culture, to become more popular to those who reject the gospel of Christ. And so in an effort to do that, they try to create a new message. They try to remove the offense of the cross that mitigates all of the things that are abhorrent to people as they hear the gospel. So they take out references to sin and repentance and the wrath of God. And they don't want to talk about humility, self-denial, brokenness over sin. They don't want to talk about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on on the cross, the atonement, His resurrection. And so they invent a new message that takes into consideration the felt needs of religious consumers, and even the sensibilities of the culture right down to the zip code level. And there's all kinds of information out there today that would help pastors understand the demographics of their particular area so that they can shape the message to somehow reach those people. I was reading the mission statement of one such church, and here's what they said. Our mission is to, quote, be culturally relevant, to be a culturally relevant church impacting both Christ followers and nonbelievers by living out the vision to make Christ famous, end quote. Well, as a result of this type of thinking, we see astonishing church growth, massive crowds filling auditoriums, but your friends, that's all they are, are crowds. They fill buildings, frankly, with tears with a few wheat scattered in amongst them, and then they call it a church. And we know biblically that Satan is the sower of tares, and we so, so we know, therefore, that these gatherings are the fruits of his labors, not the church that the Lord is building. I receive information weekly from church growth gurus on how to fill up this church with tares. All of the little ways, the little techniques and gimmicks that you can use, and Virtually everything about our church, frankly, violates those those particular lists of ideas. And it's interesting that primarily, and you probably are aware of this, but the primary thing you have to use is music. Musical style is the dominant thing. And then you need to include things like multimedia presentations and all kinds of superficial things, like they tell the pastor how he's to dress and the color of the auditorium. and. And what to have in the auditorium, what not to have. And of course, the sermons have to be pithy, kind of cotton candy sermonettes that are not offensive. They need to be sprinkled with clever little anecdotes and certainly humor. And the messages must be reduced, quite frankly, to religiously correct sound bites. Kind of like bumper stickers that make people feel good about themselves and view God as their best friend, not as a holy and a righteous judge to whom they must be reconciled. But friends, this is not the church that Jesus promised to build. And nowhere in the New Testament do we see these kinds of strategies and gimmicks employed. In fact, as we've studied here in the Acts of the Apostles, we see just the opposite. Even as we look at Paul here today before the Sanhedrin, there is no attempt here on his behalf to somehow... Develop a dialogue and find common ground. And frankly, whenever I hear that word dialogue, I realize that that is a euphemism for compromise. Neither the message nor the method ever changes. It's always a straightforward message concerning man's sin and the Savior. Yes, a condemning message, even a confrontive message. A message of repentance and self-denial and humility and brokenness faith and trust in Christ as the only hope of salvation and it's always through the method of gospel preaching that which the world considers foolishness according to 1 Corinthians 121 but what God considers well pleasing friends the early church had no desire to be popular with the world i want you to see that why because the message of the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's not what I wear. It's not the color of this room. It's not the style of music that we have. And it's certainly not some culturally relevant sermon. Because the gospel transcends all cultures. It's interesting, again, by way of review here, that the church began in the upper room in Jerusalem. Think about this. One hundred people in a room. That's kind of when it begins. And then the Spirit of God comes, and you will recall the gift of languages were given. And that was crucial because there were so many cultures, so many, frankly, tribes of people that were represented there in Jerusalem, especially at that time of worship. And in Acts two eight we read that these people heard the gospel in their own language. In verse 9, we read that they were Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia. Think of all the languages, all the different cultures here. Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. And they said, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Now, obviously, there's not a hint here of contextualizing the message to somehow accommodate the culture. It's utter folly. It's ludicrous. But despite the confrontive message that infuriated so many of the Jews and Gentiles, the church grew just as Jesus promised. And it's interesting. We can see that even on that day, there were 3000 souls added to the church. Later on in chapter 4, in a matter of days, it says that 5,000 men were added. And of course, there would have been women and children as well. So now you're probably up around 15 to 20, maybe 25,000 people. Same message, same method. By chapter 5 and verse 14, we read, All the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number." The church is grown beyond a point of being able to even put a number down. No TVs, no radio, no Internet, no iPods. No culturally relevant message. And beloved, the church continues to grow. Now, how can this be? Because it is the Lord who builds the church. It is God who is sovereign over all things, including building his church. We must understand it is not man, but God who builds the church. In Acts 1.8, Jesus proclaimed the very sequence of the spread of the gospel and the building of his church. He said, you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And as we have seen in our study of Acts, that is precisely the way the gospel spread. What a coincidence. Huh. Oh, child of God, what encouragement this should be to all of us who name the name of Christ. You see, remember, the church is the ekklesia, kaleo, to call, to call out, ek. We are the called out ones. And all through Scripture we see that those whom God has chosen in eternity past, before the foundations of the world, Ephesians 1, those he predestined to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, Ephesians 1, 5. The elect whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world, according to Revelation 13, 8. All of these people are going to be saved. And God has ordained both the end as well as the means and you and I are the means. We are the instruments of righteousness. We have been told by the Lord in Matthew 28:19, "Go and make disciples of all nations." And we see Him accomplishing His will as He is sovereignly ordained, despite the overwhelming odds. We see God continuing to build his church, not only here in Acts, but even to this day. We see Him continuing to save his elect. Those, according to Ephesians 1.11, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. And as we look at the enormous opposition that Paul continues to face, we understand now that God is sovereign. He is working his plan. He is using his infinite power. And through his providence, he is orchestrating all of these events to accomplish his purposes, even though some of the things would appear to be the end of the church. And when we find ourselves in some furnace of affliction that we can't understand, beloved, we need to understand that God is still on his throne, even as we sang a little bit ago. He knows exactly where we are at. And even in the furnace, his hand is always on the thermostat. He will never give us more than we can bear. So as an overarching theme, we see here, first of all, the purview of God's sovereignty. But secondly, we see the power of a clear conscience. Notice beginning in verse 30 of chapter 22. But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. And Paul, looking intently at the council, said, brethren, let me stop here for a second. This would not be the normal greeting of just anyone of that day. Normally, they would say, as we see in Acts 4, 8, rulers and elders of the people. But Paul did not use that particular greeting. Instead, he used the term brethren. Why? Because he was one of them. You see, he knew many of them. Many of them were his friends. No doubt some of them were his classmates when he studied under Gamaliel. Paul was a fellow Pharisee. And he had probably even been a part of the Sanhedrin. Many of those men knew him. And he says, brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Now, Let me pause for a moment and remind you of what the conscience is and what it's not. The conscience is, if you want a very simple definition, is our innate sense of right and wrong. It's an instinctive knowledge, frankly, of the law of God. You can kind of think of it as, you know, those little idiot lights that we have on our car, on our dashboard. When the motor's doing something wrong, a little light comes on and tells you that. Or if you don't fasten your seatbelt, a little light comes on and a warning beeper or whatever goes on, drives you crazy until you fasten your seatbelt. That's what our conscience does. It's like even a, shall we say, a radar in a plane or a sonar on a ship. It informs our will of right and wrong. And we should never ignore our conscience, by the way. And because all men are created in the image of God, everyone possesses a conscience, both Christians as well as non-Christians. We read in Ephesians 2.14, for example, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, in other words, unbelievers who do not know the law of God, do not understand God's will, when they do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. You see, friends, even the most vile, wretched human being on the planet will recognize certain things and value certain things like kindness and generosity and mercy and and justice and honesty and integrity and so forth. In fact, This knowledge will actually be used to testify against them someday in judgment. But you must understand that the conscience is not the final arbiter of righteousness, nor is the conscience infallible. You see, a man's conscience will only hold him accountable to the standard that he perceives to be acceptable. Now, what happens if that standard is wrong? Many times that standard is one that is wretched. The only standard that we should have is God's standard from his word. But Paul here says that he had a clear conscience and yet he had persecuted Christians. Now, how could that be? How do you explain that? Well, there's probably two things going on here. One is he was now forgiven. He understood the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had been justified by grace through faith. He had been declared righteous. His conscience is clear. But also, even in his sin, he was convinced of the standard of morality that he, his conscience was holding, to, holding him to, even though it was abominable before God. By the way, this is the same reason why a Muslim can blow up one of their own children and blow up innocent people. And it not bother them. The conscience will respond to what a man perceives to be right and wrong. So Paul could honestly say, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. In other words, in his mind, he had been forgiven and he had always been obedient to what he perceived God wanted him to do. Even before he was saved and certainly now after he's saved. Now, obviously, just practically speaking, this underscores the profound importance of making sure that our conscience has been informed by biblical truth. That the standards that we have are indeed God's standards and not man's standards, not our own standards. Bottom line, if a man's conscience is not informed by divine truth, he will not react properly to sin. Now, if I can digress for a moment, it's tragic to be around people who, as you hear some people say, have no conscience. Sometimes they're called sociopaths. Typically, these are people that are demonic. They do things that we would say are unconscionable. We see this, by the way, in the Bible with false teachers. They live a complete lie. They fleece people of their last penny. They have the morality of an alley cat. And yet they stand up and say that they are God's spokesman. They have no standard of morality to, uh, of, of which their conscience will hold them. Moreover, their conscience has been destroyed by habitual sin. First Timothy four two, four one and two. We we read Paul talking about false teachers that they they pay attention to deceitful spirits and teach doctrines of demons. And it says, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. And in other words, the demonic lies that Satan has presented to them and that they have bought into and that they teach has cauterized their conscience. As if you were to take a branding iron and you burn the tissues in one's body and then all that is left is scar tissue. The nerves are destroyed. They're, they're no longer able to communicate information to the brain. That's what happens to these kind of people. The nerves are desensitized. They're unable to communicate or assess right and wrong. I've talked to these type of people before, some of them that you would know. And I find it fascinating when you confront them with the truth versus the insanity of what they're teaching And the the filth of their lives, you will find them kind of smile and dismiss what you say and and twist things around and redefine truth. And it's like nothing grips their conscience. And yet I've been around other people who truly know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you confront them with their sin, you almost have to give them mouth to mouth grace to resuscitate them. They are so broken over their sin. What a difference Ask yourself, when was the last time you ever heard of some big name false teacher coming to true repentance and faith in Christ? You just don't hear that. Their conscience has been seared. They've been given over to a reprobate or a worthless mind, as we read in Romans one. In Titus one fifteen, Paul speaks of unbelievers as having both, quote, their mind and their conscience defiled. In other words, their mind is so filled with deception that they cannot, that it cannot accurately inform the conscience. Well, now back to Paul, there's just such power here, dear friends, in having a clean, a clear conscience before the Lord. And we see this as he as he stands there before the council who are glaring at him, who want to rip him to pieces. In fact, he would write. To Timothy in First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.5, For the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussions. And he goes on to describe some of the ridiculous babblings of would-be teachers and so on. Now think about it, dear friends. How can we possibly stand before anyone? and passionately and boldly proclaim and protect the truth if down deep our conscience is eating as us. If we know there's hypocrisy in our life. That's why Paul, I should say the writer of Hebrews, who might have been Paul, I tend to think it's probably Apollos, but we don't know for sure. In Hebrews 13, verse 18, we read, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience Desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And Peter also would say in first Peter 316 that we should keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. In other words, live a life of such purity before the Lord that the result will be not only a blameless conscience, but it will Cause other people to feel the shame of their own life compared to your life of Christ likeness. So Paul's conscience was absolutely clear before the Lord, knowing that even in his previous life of sin, he had been forgiven. And this inward reality has now given him great spiritual power to stand before his brethren. And I find it interesting. He looks them in the eyes. The original language it's as though he stares at them for a while. Can't you just see that? He, he just looks at them. And you know, when you are a hypocrite and someone you know is not a hypocrite and they stare at you, guess which one's going to blink first? And he says to them, brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Verse two, and the high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do not sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law, order me to be struck. But the bystander said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest, for it is written You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. What an amazing scene. Obviously, Paul's statement regarding his perfectly good conscience before God was a huge insult to the Jewish leaders. Because what it implied is that their conduct was offensive to God. And then adding insult to injury after Being illegally struck, Paul retorts to Ananias, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Now, May I pause here for a minute? You must understand the context here. This is probably an appellation that these men would have been very familiar with because it was once used at length by the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 13 when Ezekiel spoke for the Lord. In a scathing denunciation of the false prophets of that day who refused to warn the people of their sin and their desperate need of repentance in light of impending judgment. And God likened their phony ear tickling. Hey, we're all okay because we're being good here. We're kind of doing the law. He likened all of that to a weak and a defective wall that had been plastered over with plaster and then whitewashed to appear safe and secure. But in reality, it would be unable to stand against the storm of divine judgment that God was about to unleash upon them in the Babylonian hordes that would soon invade them and punish them for their hypocrisy. In Ezekiel chapter 13, let me read you just one section beginning in verse 14. Here's what God says through the prophet. So I shall tear down the wall which you plastered over with whitewash. And bring it down to the ground so that its foundation is laid bare. And when it falls, you will be consumed in its midst. And you will know that I am the Lord. Thus, I shall spend my wrath on the wall and on those who have plastered it over with whitewash. And I will say to you, the wall is gone and its plasterers are gone, along with the prophets of Israel who prophesy to Jerusalem and who see visions of peace. For her, when there is no peace, declares the Lord. So in an understandable fit of rage, Paul reacted sinfully to his abusers, though he did speak the truth, because what they did was illegal, illegal. And indeed, they were false teachers preaching a phony message of works righteousness. They refused to believe in the person, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were also about to experience judgment because a few years later, the Romans would come and kill them in uh, A.D. 70. But it's interesting, in, sim- in a similar situation, the sinless Savior responded quite differently, didn't he? In 1 Peter 1, 2, I mean, First Peter 2, verse 23, we read of Jesus There, Peter says, while being reviled, he did not revile in return while suffering. He uttered no threats. Well, this leads us to the third theme that emerges from the text, and that is the priority of submission to the word of God. I want you to notice how quickly Paul came to his senses when he was confronted by truth, by the word of God, even confronted, interestingly enough by wicked men who use the scripture to their own advantage. Isn't that interesting? I want you to see how promptly he humbled himself when he realized that he had violated scripture. Verse five, he says, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, remember, this council had been convened probably somewhere in the vicinity of Fort Antonia. It was not a regular type of council where the high priest would be obvious. Paul had not been around many of his men, men for years. He obviously didn't recognize who the high priest was. But I want you to notice, dear friends, this is the response of a godly man who realized that he was wrong, a man who was even teachable When ungodly men quoted scripture to him, I find that interesting. A man who was absolutely consumed with the priority of submitting himself to the word of God in every situation. His respect for the authority of scripture utterly eclipsed the injustice that he had just endured. Would that we all, dear friends, be so quick to measure ourselves against the word of God and to submit to its authority. In fact, I would challenge you the next time you swell up in some anger and you lash out at someone, it would be wise for you to really measure not only what has happened to you, but your response to it in light of the word of God. And probably you will find out that your righteous indignation was probably not as righteous as you first thought it was. Well, this is precisely what we see in this scenario with the Apostle Paul. And notice what happens. First part of verse 6. But perceiving that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. Now let's stop there. This is so important. You've got to understand what's happening here. Paul is so wise. You know, the old saying, divide and conquer, that's what he's about to do. You see, these are two opposing groups that radically differed on key issues. The Sadducees were the theological liberals of the day. They scoffed at the notion of of angels and spirits, uh, the resurrection of the dead, any afterlife. They didn't believe in any of that. Pharisees did. They believed in all of that. You see, the Sadducees were also kind of the, 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 the political power brokers. They were, they were in cahoots with the Romans. They were comfortable with the Romans. They, they were also, therefore, desperate to hang on to their power and all of their financial holdings. They were making money off of the political system and their religious position. And so, therefore, if they were to embrace Jesus... The message of Jesus of Nazareth, they would have to forfeit all of this. (laughs) They're not going to do that. You see, their greed and lust for power and prestige caused them to join forces with the Pharisees to oppose Jesus and the exponential growth of the gospel of Christ. Well, obviously, Paul understood all of this. He had been a part of it and he wanted to drive a wedge in this. Fragile alliance that had been galvanized around their mutual hatred of, of Paul for various reasons and the, and the church. And so he now appeals to his fellow Pharisees, whom he knew held far more in common with Christianity than the Sadducees. Notice what he says in verse 6. Paul began crying out in the council, brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. Isn't it interesting? You see, you must understand that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was the greatest of all proofs. He was indeed the one he claimed to be. He was the long anticipated Messiah. He was the Lamb of God. And it's interesting, those men that he was talking to, that he was staring at, knew all too well how they had tried to cover up a number of years before that very fact, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, even to the point where they bribed the Roman soldiers to propagate a lie. Remember, they were told to say, hey, look, you don't know, just tell everybody that that the, his disciples came by night and, and and stole him away while you were all asleep. And, and, and we'll defend you here on this. Even though we all know it's a lie. Verse 7. And as he said this, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees. And the assembly was divided for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. (laughs) How interesting the the Pharisees, I, I have to laugh at this. Uh, the, the Pharisees suddenly find themselves defending Paul, the very man that they hate with a passion. They find themselves having to defend him before the Sadducees. Only God could pull something like that off. And As I think about it, you know, you can take a coon and a possum and throw them in a barrel. and They might get along for a few minutes, but it's not going to take long that they're going to fight. And Paul knew precisely what would cause these men to turn on each other and pandemonium breaks out. Verse nine. And there rose a great uproar and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, we find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. Verse 10. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. What a three ring circus. And, you know, I have to feel a bit sorry for the commander. Don't you know he was about to pull his hair out? What on earth are these people so? I just don't get it. You know, it's even like in our culture, you know, discussing politics with people in and of itself is potentially explosive. But if you add religion in the mix, dear friends, you have nitro and glycerin and something's going to happen. And you're probably going to detonate a nuclear warhead. And that's what happened here. Now, I want to give you a little bit of the context here so that you understand more fully what's happening. You must understand now that literally thousands and thousands of people were coming to Christ. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees were seeing their power slipping away from them. Remember, in Acts 5:28, the Sanhedrin earlier had confronted Paul, told him to stop teaching. And they said, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. I mean, and this is years before. And in chapter 6, verse 7, it said, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of the, descend- of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Oh, boy, that's all we need is to have some of our own crossing the line you'll recall in Acts 21, verse 20, when James, the pastor of the church there in Jerusalem, speaks to Paul, he says, see how many thousands are among the Jews of those who have believed in Jerusalem. Now, friends, if you were to apply the same percentage of those who had come to Christ by this time there in Jerusalem and in that area, to the United States, we wouldn't be talking thousands. We'd be talking millions of people. Now, think about this. Imagine if that were to happen here in the United States. Imagine if millions of Americans suddenly were truly born again. I don't mean this phony church that we have out here, but I mean truly born again, radically transformed. Imagine then millions of Americans suddenly standing up for righteousness and truth and morality in the country. No longer supporting the wickedness of public education's indoctrination of our children, no longer supporting abortion clinics, clinics having to shut down because people aren't coming. No longer submissive to the metastasizing corruption of political correctness. People by the millions are turning off their television sets. They're boycotting the filth of Hollywood. They're boycotting the entertainment community. They, they're not listening to the liberal media. And all of this, of course, is Satan's primary means of deception. So the whole system is beginning to crumble. The whole country would begin to to totter on the verge of collapse. And think about this. The the political power brokers in Washington would suddenly see the handwriting on the wall, wouldn't they? They would be like the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And what would they do? They'd have to all come together, liberal and conservative. We've got to do something here. This thing's really getting out of hand. So imagine the liberals and the conservatives are, are suddenly galvanized in their mutual hatred of Christianity. Because to their utter dismay, a true... Church, the true church of Jesus Christ has erupted into a supernatural revival like in the days of the early church and it's sweeping across the nation. Oh, we've got to stop this thing. We are a pluralistic society. Every religion is equal. There's no such thing as absolute truth. We can't have one faith dominating the world. And then imagine some poor defender of the faith kind of like, kind of like Paul, is subpoenaed and he has to stand before a joint session of Congress and testify what's going on. And suddenly he decides to do a little dividing and conquering here, just like Paul did with the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees. And he appeals to the conservatives, which are going to be closer, even though not where they would need to be with respect to genuine Christianity. And he says, brethren, don't you agree that this nation was founded? One nation under God. The God of the Bible. History is clear. Don't you see that? And it is in God we trust. We we see it on our money. And it is His Word, the Bible, that we lay our hands upon when we commit ourselves to tell the truth under oath. Well, (laughs) They would have to say, you know what? Yeah, I mean, these things are all true. Well, as soon as the conservatives would say that, what would the liberals do? They would explode in rage. Oh, no. What are you talking about? Well, this is the same kind of dynamic that went on with Paul before the Sanhedrin. By the way, might I add as a footnote, something far infinitely greater than the scenario, hypothetical scenario that I just described will actually occur when the Lord does return and when He establishes His kingdom. When every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Well, Paul had to be rescued once again by the Romans. And don't you know he would have been discouraged, wouldn't you? I mean, you've been beat up, you're humiliated. You're just kind of pulled apart. He had to have been exhausted. And this leads us to our final theme, our fourth theme here, and that is the presence of God in suffering. Notice verse 11. But on the night immediately following, in other words, that same night, the Lord stood at his side. People read that again. The Lord stood at his side and said, take courage for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem so you must witness at Rome also and we don't know for sure but the lord probably said much more than this but this was the dominant theme of what he said take courage for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem so you must witness at Rome also imagine this the The Lord himself appears to his beleaguered servant and assures him that you're going to go to Rome. It's not over yet. You're going to witness for me in Rome, even as you have here in Jerusalem. What comfort this must have been to Paul. What incredible comfort. You know, the Lord always knows just the perfect time to console us, doesn't he? He always knows when we're, 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 we're just at the end of our rope. And he's promised to never burden us with more than we can bear. He's promised that he is going to comfort us. He's never going to leave us nor forsake us. And, you know, Paul experienced this firsthand. And thus he could say, as we read earlier in Second Corinthians one verses four and five, God comforts us. In all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Later on, even in chapter seven of second Corinthians, verse four, he said, I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy. In all our affliction. Beloved, never forget these great truths. Never forget that there will always be joy and sorrow. There will always be consolation in the midst of tribulation. In fact, the greater the troubles, the richer the communion with the lover of our souls. You know, as I think about this, I'm sure Paul not only was physically fatigued, but spiritually he was exhausted. I'm sure he would have been in tears. I'm sure he would have gone into his little room there in in the barracks and cried out to the Lord in anguish of soul, as he had so many times in the past. And as I thought about that, I thought about the psalmist that said, Out of the depths will I cry unto Thee, O God. And beloved, it is with that mournful cry, the God of all comfort quickly responds with tender mercy. Spurgeon very poignantly summarized this. He said, quote, There is no cry so good as that which comes from the bottom of the mountains. No prayer half so hearty as that which comes up from the depths of the soul through deep trials and afflictions. Hence, they bring us to God and we are happier. For that is the way to be happy, to live near to God, so that while troubles abound, they drive us to God and then consolations abound. Beloved, as we close this morning, I... I want you to think back upon those times where you have found yourself in anguish of soul, where you have experienced such deep pain and such deep hurt that you have no place to go but on your face before the Lord. I have been there many times and I'm sure you have. If you haven't, you will. And I can attest, as I'm sure many of you can, that when you cry out for God to somehow be your strength in that moment of need, to somehow bring comfort and perspective and consolation, that He indeed does that. Sometimes it might not be immediate, but I can tell you I've experienced time and time again how God has answered that prayer. Where somehow, in some mysterious way that I cannot fully explain, there will come sweeping over my soul such peace and understanding and strength that it fuels determination and it fuels a willingness to go on. What a tribute to the God of all comforts. Sometimes He will use The words of a friend. Maybe it's a card. Maybe it's a phone call. Certainly, I've never had the Lord come and stand next to me. Wouldn't that be something? But in many ways, He does through His Word. More often than not, that's what He has used in my life. How many times do I find myself living in the Psalms? Many times it will be the words of a great hymn. That's why it's so important to sing those hymns of the faith. So that the rich nuances of theology are there in our hearts and in time of need, we tap into those things because therein we find strength. Sometimes it's through just some simple joy that the Lord brings in ways that was unexpected. The smile of a grandchild, the hug of a wife, you know how it works. But the point is, the Lord is always there. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And we see that even here in the life of this dear apostle. May we all rejoice in what we have witnessed in this text today, that God might be glorified in us and might be glorified through us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these rich And marvelous themes that emerge from this historical narrative, we thank you for the power of your word to reach deep within our hearts and bring us comfort and give us hope and give us strength and determination to be your instruments of righteousness as we participate in what you have ordained in eternity past, namely the building of your church. Lord, we give You all of the glory and all of the praise and we thank You from the depths of our heart. And Lord, again, I cry out as Your servant that You would be merciful to those that do not know You as Savior. Especially those who are the tares that have even convinced themselves that they are the wheat when in fact they are not. Lord, bring conviction to their hearts. And save them for your glory. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author, David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit resources.org.